Good morning. My name is Fran, and I'm a member of Worldwide Al-Anon. Hi. My home group is the Bessemer Al-Anon Family Group. We moved from Bessemer to Birmingham four and a half years ago, but I still travel around 40, mi 40 miles to go to my home group on Wednesday at noon because I just can't seem to walk away from that group. Uh, when you've been there from the time it started almost, uh, there's something almost like family. You just can't seem to leave it. And even though we visit many groups in Birmingham, I haven't found one quite like that home group. So I hope you have a home group too. Uh, I am going to mention this briefly just to explain to you why I am walking in such a funny way. I ordinarily have a fairly decent walk. Uh, I had a really hard fall the week before Christmas and um, broke my hip. And uh, so I'm recovering from that. And uh, I told the doctor, I said, the one thing that I want you to do is get me well by the first weekend in April because I'm going to Rough River and I want to walk up to that podium. So I'm going to sit down on this little stool back here most of the time, but I'll start here. I want to tell you a little bit about my life growing up just to let you know how ill-prepared I was to live with an alcoholic. Um, I came from one of those rare homes that are loving, caring Christian homes that treat you with kindness your whole life through. And I understand there are not too many of those left. But I was very, very lucky and blessed, and I know it. Uh, I grew up in the time before most of you were born uh, when nobody in our crowd smoked or drank and nobody ever even heard of drugs. Um, the main thing my mother warned me against was don't kiss him goodnight. I decided to try it anyway, and it was, <laughs> it was really lots of fun. So I, I thought maybe she wasn't right about everything, you know. <laughs> Pretty old-fashioned, really. Um, it was a completely different kind of world, and I just want you to, to understand uh, how sheltered I was. I guess I was really naive about many things. I spent a lot of time with books. I was an avid reader. Um, I would, we only had one car. Uh, people right after the Depression didn't have two cars, and the children never had a car. So that's how different it was. And so I traveled on skates. Uh, we didn't have enough money to buy me a bicycle, and so I traveled on skates, and I would skate a mile to the library, and I would skate back with an armload of books, and I never had any trouble with it. I was a very good skater. And uh, for entertainment, we danced. We had dances every weekend, and we would go to the movies, and we would get a hot fudge Sunday, And we could do all of that for about $2. Uh, 
We didn't make much money, but it went a long way back then. Um, so this is the kind of culture I grew up in. Uh, my parents took me to church um, regularly. Uh, there was no question about it. We didn't say, are we going today? We just got up and got ready. You know, it was that sort of thing. Um, they were, they, they wanted my brother and me to be the best we could be, and they expected it of us. My mother, I thought, was entirely too strict. I had to be in the house by 10 o'clock, you know, and things like that when I thought that was ridiculous. But she was very, very good to me in many, many ways, and my dad was the most loving man in the world. My mother was a teacher, and it came through in her discipline of us. Uh, she expected us to make good grades, and we did. Um, my dad would sit down with me and explain the math that I didn't understand and watch me as I learned it, and he would be sure that I understood what I was supposed to know. Uh, and I look back on that and, and really thank them for what they did for me, although I resented it very often in those days. Um, my mother said to me one time, I hope you will never date anybody who drinks because that could really get you in a lot of trouble. And I can remember when I was in college that I was invited to the dances at Auburn and the boy that I was dating drank a beer and I immediately dropped him because he drank. Now, that's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> um, I came along during the time when you got skipped in school. Um, I look back at education and see how much it's changed. And I'm so glad that that change has happened. Because even though they, if I had all A's for a period of time, they would say, well, she needs to be in the next grade. But I was not really ready for the next grade. Uh, socially, I mean, you know, I just didn't fit anywhere. I kept going somewhere else. And I finished college when I was barely 20. And that was going through pretty fast. And I look back and think, I wish I'd had more time with that. I would have learned more. I would have had more time to study and think about things. But I was constantly getting ready for the next day's lesson. When I graduated... I was offered two jobs. I was offered a job teaching school for the great salary of $85 a month. That was the going salary for first-year teachers. And you could live on it if you really worked hard at it. Um, I asked my dad. I had no idea how much money was worth because he always just gave me what I told him I had to have. And um, so I asked him, I said, you think I can live on that, Dad? And he said, well, maybe if I buy your clothes, and I, I remember that. But um, I was offered another job. Uh, one of the girls that was my friend in college, um, I went to spend a weekend with her in Anniston after we graduated, and her dad was in charge of all the USO clubs in the city of Anniston for Fort McClellan. And he, we were at breakfast one morning, and he said, are you going to take that teaching job? And I said, well, I guess I will. I, haven't, I don't have anything else that I know I can do. And he said, uh, I have an opening for someone to direct the USO club. 
And he said, would you like to have that? I think you could do it. And I said, what's the salary? And he said, $150 a month and the use of a car. Boy, you know what I took. (laughs) I didn't know if I would know how to do that or not, but I learned in a hurry. This was during wartime in the 40s. And I thought, oh my, all these boys are going to be coming through here. And I liked boys, you know. I really thought they were neat. And I thought, man, I'm going to have trouble with this. So I made a kind of pledge to myself that I wouldn't date any of these boys. They were on their way to war, and I didn't need that. So I just would be friendly to them and nice to them and try to make them happy at the club and get good movies for them to see and get the young girls into dances and that sort of thing. But I wouldn't date them. And I didn't for a few months. (laughs) (laughs) And then a young fellow walked through the club named Jim. And he said... My name's Jim Drysdale, and I thought, that's the funniest name. I never heard that name before. We had most, mostly Smiths and Browns and Moors and, you know, plain little short names, and Drysdale. That was a strange one. And I said, okay, I'm glad. I, where do you, what do you want to do? And he, he wanted to listen to classical music. He always went into the music room and spent the afternoon and listened to music. I thought, he surely is strange. Well, the next Sunday, he came in again, and he walked right up to me, and he said, what's my name? And I thought, oh, there's that boy with a funny name, and I didn't know. So he wrote it down on a piece of paper and put it on my desk, and he said, the next time I come in here, I want you to know my name. Well, six months later, we got married. (laughs) My mother was heartbroken. She, She was my little white glove mother, you know. Uh, and she always thought of me having a big church wedding at home in our big church with all the bridesmaids and all the stuff, you know. And here I was going to get married at the fort with one person in attendance. And she said to me, you never have even met a member of his family. You know nothing about this boy. You have only known him a few months. And I said, that's all I need. And she said, oh, I don't think so. And she'd cry. And she'd say, just wait till he gets back from the war. But I didn't want to wait. He might not get back from the war. And so we were married. Four months later, he was sent overseas. And uh, about a month after that, I found out I was pregnant. And I certainly did not know it when he left. And... So I knew that I could just work a little while longer. So I worked on until that fall, and then I went home. Um, My mother was not too happy about the whole thing. She kept telling me that if I hadn't gotten pregnant, I could go on to graduate school while he was fighting. Well, you know, that's not what I needed to hear at all. Uh, But that was mother, and I loved her dearly, but she just was not on the same wavelength with me at that particular time. I 
stayed in that, it was a big two-story house, and I stayed in that house by myself most of the day. My dad would go to work, my mother was a teacher, and my brother was in school. And so I would I would stay and sew little baby clothes and knit little booties and that sort of thing. And one day I got a message, I got a telegram saying that uh, we, re- we re- regret to inform you that your husband is missing in action. And um, that was hard. That was scary. And I had, uh, I had prayed all my life, just, you know, little prayers that I had memorized, but I really, really started praying for Jim and his safety. And um, then I guess about a month later, I got another telegram telling me that he was a prisoner of war. And at least he was alive, but I kept praying very hard for him to uh, stay alive and get back home. Uh, when Jim did get back home, uh, our little girl was almost a year old. She was walking and talking a little, and she didn't know who in the world he was, and he didn't know who she was, and that was a, a difficult transition. But uh, we packed her up, and we came to Buffalo, New York to live. And boy, you talk about snow. I never saw so much snow in my life. I mean, day after day after day. And there I was in this house with this little baby and Jim gone to work, and it snowed and snowed and snowed. And I didn't know my neighbors. And, you know, I was used to taking cookies next door and talking to people. And so finally I said to Jim, I want to go home. I don't think I can live here the rest of my life. And he said, well, I like the South. We'll just go. So we had bought a house on the GI loan, which we sold, and we went back to Bessemer. We didn't have jobs. Can you imagine this? My children have done this to me. (laughs) But I thought nothing of doing it to my parents. We just moved in. Luckily, they had a lot of room, and uh, so they gave us a, a little apartment with a bedroom and a bathroom and a little kitchenette and a little private entrance and that's where we lived until we could find some other place to live. Um, Jim got a job right away selling cars and was doing well and I got a job teaching school. Um, We took our little girl to nursery school and so things were going along. Well, you know when Jim was, uh, Jim was not a drinker when I knew him before we were married and During the time that he was gone, I kept thinking, I bet he comes back smoking. (laughs) He didn't. But you know, he did come back drinking. And I had no idea what to do about it. And I knew he had had a really tough time. uh, And so I thought, well, I'll give him a little bit of time to get better from this experience. And then I'll fix it. You know, Alanons always think they can fix it. And we try. We truly do. I tried everything for 17 years. I tried everything I could think of. Some of those things were really bad. Some of those things were pretty good. He told you about that black 90s and negligees that I bought. I thought, well, I guess I can love him to death if nothing else. But he'd pass out in the middle of that too so (laughs) I tell you 
I just didn't have a chance. I didn't know what to do. Well, we had a, a little boy uh, when Jane was six years old. And then a year and a half later, we had another little girl, Jody. So we had three children now, and I was still teaching school, and he was still selling cars, and he was still drinking. And, and things got sort of tough between us. I mean, you know, here I was trying to straighten him out, and so we had family meetings, and I'd lecture at those family meetings. And he'd listen, and he'd say, okay. All right, I'll try that, okay, if that's what you want me to do. And for two, three days, he'd be pretty good. And then it would be right back into the rat race again. And, and I was getting pretty desperate about what I could do to make this man stop drinking. I would look at uh, other families, our neighbors, and I would see him out cutting the grass, and I would see them going on picnics, and I would think, why can't we be like that? I just wanted to be a normal, happy family. And we weren't. We weren't at all. And we would plan something, and he wouldn't show up, and so we, was, we just didn't go. And the kids didn't get to do things that they wanted to do. And this was because I didn't know any better. I didn't know any different. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know very much about alcoholism. My children laughingly say that mom was so naive that she thought the book, The Happy Hooker, was about a contented lady who made rugs. <laughs> they still tease me, you know, because I have such a hard time believing some things they tell me. <laughs> Well, surprisingly, our kids didn't get in much trouble. They really didn't, just normal little things, you know, but nothing serious, and I was really grateful for that. Uh, but I thought they were just doing what they were supposed to be doing. I didn't know to appreciate it as I should have. Um, a wall started uh, growing so much between Jim and me, and uh, I'm sure that I was not an easy person to live with because I was so angry. Uh, my mother and dad uh, were sort of models for me, and I could remember how mother would give dad her teacher's check, and he would put it in their joint account, and there was always enough money to pay all the bills, and then we got some new clothes, and we went on vacations, and we got to do some things, you know, because they were careful with their money, and they both worked hard. And so I thought, well, that's the way you're supposed to do it. So I signed my teacher's check and gave it to Jim. Well, something happened to that money. It just never would last long enough to pay the bills. Sometimes we'd have to decide which one we'd pay this month, you know? I don't know if any of you have ever gone through that. <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was not anything I liked. I really hated it. But it still did not occur to me that I didn't have to give him my money. Huh. Well, we went along, and it was in 1960 that things just got terrible, just really, really bad. And I remember Jim gave me an orange dress for Christmas, and I just hated orange. 
That was the worst Christmas of all. And he was so drunk, he fell in the Christmas tree, and I had put red little red birds on the Christmas tree. And he fell in the Christmas tree, and those little birds just flew all over the den. And I thought, oh, good heavens. And he weighed a lot more than he does now, and he was on the floor, and I couldn't move him. And there he was with birds on top of him and the tree on top of him part way. And the children and I just stepped over him. Just stepped over him and went to bed because that's all we could do. And so that was not a really happy Christmas. Um, I don't know if any of you ever had any Christmases like that or not. Uh, most of us have had at least one. Um, in 1961, Jim got where he didn't talk. He, it, it, he was just a totally different person. It was as if I didn't know him. And I was really tired of it. But back in, in those days, people didn't get divorces easily. Now, even my mother said to me, I think it's time for you to get a divorce. You don't have to live like this. And I said, but I love him. And she said, how could you? And I said, well, I don't always like him. I don't like the things he does, but I love him. And I'm going to get him straight. <laughs> and she would say, I don't think so. <laughs> well, that made me even more determined to keep trying. But I had about given up, and so my thoughts went to, hey, you know, uh, maybe uh, I think he's going to have an accident because he drives drunk and uh, you can't keep doing that. And my prayer was that he wouldn't kill anybody else, but uh, I didn't say anything about him. <laughs> um, I, I sort of thought that might happen and solve the whole thing. And I felt a little guilty about it, but um, it was just about the only way out I could figure because I was not having any luck. So um, one Monday morning, uh, the secretary came into my room in school and she said, Fran, get your purse and come on and coach is going to take you to the hospital. Jim has had an accident. And I said, what kind of an accident? It was a car accident, huh? And she said, oh, no, no, he was cleaning his gun and it went off. Uh-uh, we had never had a gun. And so I knew that life had become too much for him. And he had decided that he could not make it. Um, I cannot tell you the feelings I had as we went to that hospital. I was so afraid he would be dead. And I thought to myself, this is what you get for wishing like you've been wishing. But when we got there, he was still alive, but barely. Um... For a week, he was totally out of it, and I spent much of that time on my knees asking God to let him live, and I knew I didn't really want him dead. I wanted him sober, and I couldn't get that. I couldn't make that happen. I didn't know what to do. I had never heard of AA. Now, I had missed it some way along the way, but... I guess I thought it didn't apply to us. I'm sure I was in denial because Jim went to church. He dressed and went to work every day, no matter what. 
And I thought, well, you can't be an alcoholic if you do that. And I remembered in a sociology textbook reading about alcoholics in Chicago who were sitting on the curb in old uh, un dirty undershirts with old wine bottles. And that's what I thought alcoholics were. I didn't know they belonged to the country club and played golf. I just didn't know. And so it didn't occur to me that he could be an alcoholic. I thought he drank too much, but I didn't know that's what made you an alcoholic. I, could, I didn't think you could have a home and a family and be an alcoholic, but you could. You see, it was because I didn't know. It was the ignorance on my part that made it take us so long before we came to any point of understanding. But when Jim came out of, of uh, the, I guess, coma, whatever, uh, he said to me, my trouble is alcohol. He said, I know what's wrong. It's alcohol. But I promise you, if God lets me live, that I will never take another drink. And I believed him. I truly believed him because I thought you can't go through something like this and decide you can't live anymore and make a comment like that and not mean it. And I thought, hooray, this battle's over. We're going to be all right. But I just didn't know about alcoholism. We walked around the hills close to our house and, and talked. For the first time, we started communicating and being honest with each other and um, try, trying to find our way back to each other. And one day he said, I think I'd like to go to the ball game. You want to go with me? And it didn't occur to me that I should go with him. I said, I really can't. I, I guess I'll just stay home with the kids, but you go ahead and, and enjoy it. And he did. He called me about 11 o'clock and he said, Honey, I'm going to bring you some lasagna. <laughs> and you know how we know on the telephone? <laughs> we know on the telephone. And I thought, oh my heavens. This is starting again. And I cannot go through this again and stay sane. And we have these three children. And somebody's got to take care of them. And he's never going to. And so... I'll have to get a divorce, even, even though I love him. I can't go through this again and stay sane. I'm about crazy now. And so I got up the next morning and got dressed. I was going to the lawyer, and he said to me, Honey, please don't go to the lawyer. I hadn't told him, but he knew. And um, he said, My doctor told me about this man that had been sober a couple of years, and he said, if you'll wait, I'll go to this place he told me about called AA. And I said, okay, I'll wait. I thought, hey, this might be the miracle. This might be it. And he went, and he came back sober. And he had a handful of literature, and we sat down and read it out loud to each other. And I said, oh, I like the way this sounds. I really like the way this sounds. This might work. I said, can I go too? And he said, oh, no, they don't allow women down there. <laughs> it takes a while to quit lying.
Well, like he told you last night, 30 days later, he said I could go, and I did. We didn't have Al-Anon in Bessemer at that time, so I went to open meetings of AA, and I listened to them, and I started learning something about alcoholism. There was a couple in AA named Katie and Jim who were very kind to me, and we would sit after the meetings until 11, 12, 1 o'clock, and talk and share, and they tried to explain to me what alcoholism was and how it worked and how it affected people, and that Jim really did want to get sober, but he didn't know how. But they would try to help him. And I can't tell you what that meant to me. That was the finest thing I could imagine, that somebody knew what they were doing and they were willing to help. I'll never forget that couple. Well, Katie and I got to be the cake makers. And uh, every Tuesday night we would make cakes and take, it was a small group, around no more than 20 total. And they were hungry to get new people. And i never forget the joy when somebody would come in and get sober and you could see them change. We became very a very close, small group and we really cared about each other. And when somebody would have a slip, how we learned to try to help them and to work with them and to get them back and to let them know that this was not the end of the world, that they could always start again. And so I, I learned a great deal during those seven and a half years. Uh, we traveled a lot uh, just to different meetings we, we went to Tuscaloosa. We went all the way to Mississippi. We went over to Georgia and Florida. You know, we'd just drive and drive and drive to go to meetings. And because we, it was so new and it was, it was so wonderful, Jim was not drinking. But, you know, I had been fooled for a long time, and I thought, he is not going to fool me again. And I don't know if this thing's going to last or not. I really didn't have much faith and much trust. It took me a long time. And so when he would come in, I would meet him at the door and I would sniff. And he started calling me his sniffer kisser. <laughs> because I really wanted to know if he was drinking and I didn't know it. But he kept coming home sober. And our lives got better. Um, in the summer of 1969, Jim, as he told you, had been made president of a small corporation. It's amazing how these alcoholics go straight up when they get sober. I mean, they get better and better at their jobs, and they got, get to making more money, and they get successful, and all sorts of wonderful things happen to them when they're really, really sober. And so Jim was doing quite well financially. And he came home one morning and he said, I think you better come and sit down. I need to talk to you. And I had no idea. And he told me that he had been drinking on the road and he was spending one or two nights a week um, out of town. And it was just as if somebody had dug a hole and pushed me in it. I just didn't have what it took to get through it. I didn't know how to get through it. You see, when we started Al-Anon in Bessemer, it was so new. We didn't have anybody from another group to come and tell us what we needed to do. 
there was very little literature. We did a lot of things wrong at first. We um, talked about our spouses and our alcohol, you know, our alcoholics and what they had done and how we had felt. But we didn't work on ourselves. We didn't know that was important. We didn't know we were supposed to do that. And so I got very sick because I didn't have that basic thing you needed in Al-Anon. And I just sort of stepped back from the world for a while. I quit going to church for the first time in my life. I quit going to Al-Anon on a regular basis. I quit seeing friends. I went to work because I knew I had to, and that was about it. And I'm sure I neglected my children during that time because I didn't spend the time with them that I should have. I went through this for a, a while. I went to see um, Katie and Jim, and I was complaining and crying and screaming and saying, what in the world is wrong with him? He knows about AA now. Why is he keeping on drinking? And Jim said to me, the, the man in this, of this couple said to me, Fran, you need to get back to Elanon on a regular basis. And that's one of the best bits of advice I ever got. Because I was not thinking about what was happening to me. I was thinking about what he was doing to me. I was blaming it all on him. And so when I got in the car that day, I thought, He's right, I need to get back to Al-Anon, and I'm going tonight. And I started going every time that door opened. Night or day, I was there for a meeting when I was not working. And Jim would say to me, um, are you planning to go to Al-Anon tonight? And I would say, yes. And he would say, well, I was going to take you to dinner. Or he would say, I thought you might like to go to see such and such a movie. Just on al meeting nights. That's the only time I got invited. <laughs> and I would say, no, I got to go to al And it was because I knew that I had to go to al I had to learn something about this thing that was killing all of us. I had to go. And so I went back and, boy, they were so, so wonderful. They had grown. We had a little more literature. Uh, we had people who knew what they were doing. They were working on themselves. They weren't talking about their spouses. I sat there and I thought, I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. And then I realized that that was true, but that I was there to learn. And so for about a year, I sat there and didn't open my mouth unless somebody called me on me by name. I just sat and listened. I read every piece of conference-approved literature they had. I got a sponsor. I studied the 12 steps very hard and tried to live by them. I studied the traditions. I shared. I talked with people. I started to work on my own life. I learned to shift my attention from Jim to myself. I was convinced that I could not get him sober, no matter how much I loved him or how much I wanted him sober. I could not do that. And so I did, did not need to waste time anymore. Being unhappy or miserable or trying, 
I'd leave that to the AAs if he ever got back there again. And I would ask God to send him back. And I would work on Fran. Because goodness knows, she needed a bunch of work. She was one sick chick at that time. But I worked hard on me because I wanted to get well again. And I knew that was the only way because those were the only people who knew what I was talking about. And they were the only people who had an answer for me. And so we worked together. Mickey was a tough sponsor, but she was a good sponsor. And she took me through the steps and we spent a whole weekend together doing the fifth step. She told me at that time that if anybody was nice enough to ask me to talk, that I should put on my nice dress and look as good as I could so that people would know that I was getting better. I never thought it made a lot of difference, but I've always done that because my sponsor told me to. She's still there. She just lost her husband, but is just doing great. You can tell she has a great, pro great program because she can accept things. Now, they had told me in Al-Anon, one day I was fussing a little bit about no, not having any money, and they said, one of the girls said to me, well, friend, you know in Al-Anon you have choices. I said, yes, I know. I didn't know that for a long time, but I know that now. And she said, well, you can choose not to give Jim your check if you don't want to. It's up to you. And I thought, that is the most splendid idea I ever heard of. <laughs> Why in the world had I never thought of it? What a great idea. And so from that time on, I started my own bank account. Jim was not real happy about that either. But I saved my money, and I went to Europe without him and I saw all those things I had studied and read about the Eiffel Tower Big Ben in London the sheep on the hills in Scotland went to the to the theater in Austria I mean I got to see it all and I loved it I had such a good time and I thought there's another way to live that I didn't know a thing about and now I have my own money that was one of the good things Al-Anon gave me. <laughs> Maybe not the most important, but it was pretty important. Uh, one day the teachers came to me and said, hey, we're going back to school. There's a new a state rule that if you don't take six more hours after you've taught so many years, you won't get a raise. Do you want to go with us? And I said, yeah, I want to go. So my parents would come over and stay with the children, and I would go to... Uh, graduate school at night and oh I had the best time because I'd always loved to go to school and I'd like to read and, and I and I enjoyed it so when I got my six hours I signed up for six more hours and then I signed up for six more hours and pretty soon I got a master's degree now I didn't set out to get a master's degree I just want to get my raise but I got a master's degree, and they gave me $50 a month more in salary just like that. And that was a lot of money back then. And you know what my one thought was? I'm not letting Jim Drysdale get this $50. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
You see, I was a long way from well. <laughs> but anyway, I had learned that. And so I went out looking for some way to spend that money. And I found a really pretty brick house. And this was just before houses just went out of sight. And it cost exactly $50 a month more than our house payment at that time. And so I bought that house. And it was a very good investment. It, that was one of the first times I'd ever invested any money. But it was a lot of fun. And I wished I had more to invest because that one turned out really good. So I was, I was growing in a way in Al-Anon. I learned to have a new relationship with my higher power. I had always believed in God. I'd always talked to him. But now he was more like a friend. And I would tell him what was going on and I would ask for his guidance. And it was amazing to me how often he helped me. One day the principal said to me, uh, you finished 30 years of teaching and I'm supposed to tell you that you can retire. I just assumed you didn't because I'd like to keep you, but I have to tell you. And I said, how much money are we talking about? And he said, well, only about $100 less than you're making a month now. And I said, I'm retiring. Um, so I retired and I had parties and got silver trays and all that stuff, you know. And um, in two weeks, my house was clean. Our children were either married or in college. I didn't have anything to do. I had not learned how to use free time because I'd never had any. And so I was talking to God about it. And I said, you know, I guess I did the wrong thing. I retired and I'm not really ready to retire. Now, if you know of a job where I could work with children, I wish you'd let me know about it. And then I just went on about my business. And, but then I said, oh, by the way, God, you better hit me kind of hard with it because you know I don't pay attention all the time. <laughs> so uh, that week, that very same week, I was in the beauty shop and I was getting my hair dried on, you know, with the dryer and a lady came up and knocked on my dryer. <laughs> it was as if God was saying, you said hit me hard with it. Here it is. And this lady picked up my dryer and she said, do you have a master's degree? And I said, yes. And then she asked me what it was in and I told her. And she said, you're the one we've been praying for. And oh, did that scare me. I'll tell you, I, I thought, I hope God's not sending me to India or somewhere. I really don't want to go there. And here I've asked him to give me something to work with children and their children everywhere. And I was pretty nervous about this whole thing. And I said, oh, what are you talking about? What do you have in mind? And she said, well, um, we're looking for a, princi a principal uh, for our school, a parochial school. And I said, parochial? I said, that's Catholic. And she said, yes, that's Catholic. And I said, well, I don't think I can do that. I'm Methodist. <laughs> you know, you kneel down and you ask God to please help you. And when he sends that first lifeboat, you go kicking and screaming away saying, that's not what I had in mind. Anything in mind. I was just asking him. And 
this lady was smart enough to say, will you come talk to the priest? And I said, yes. So I did, and he was kind of a heavyset guy, and he said, young lady, I understand you're not coming with us just because you're Methodist. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, now, if you were Baptist, I could understand that. (laughs) He said, I don't want you to teach religion. I want you to run the school. And I, I thought, this is a man with a great sense of humor, and I think we could get along. And so I said, I will be happy to, especially after I heard the salary. It was more than I have ever made teaching. And so for the next 11 years, I was principal of that uh, uh, Catholic elementary school, and it was wonderful. I got to know that whole community that I had not known before, and I got to see how caring they were and how much they loved their children and how much they were willing to sacrifice for their children to have a good education. It was a fantastic school. We had so many volunteers, and I had the time of my life. And I surely had to thank God for it because I didn't even know there was such a job available. I knew nothing about it, and I would not have gotten it if I had not asked him for it, and I am sure of that. During this time, I went back to see Katie and Jim. And this time, I had learned a little bit in Al-Anon. There was so much to learn. They had told me to detach And I knew that detach meant walk away. So I walked away. I just went my way, like I went to Europe by myself. I just did my own thing. And I just sort of ignored him. And it was not because I didn't care about him. It was because that was what I was hearing, detach. And finally Mickey said to me, Fran, You're supposed to detach with love, and I don't see you doing that. Uh, You still love Jim, don't you? And I said, oh, yes. Yes, I do. But I'm trying to get him sober. And she said, now, you've learned enough to know you can't do that. And you've learned enough to know the only person you can work on is yourself, and the only person you can change is yourself. And so you need to learn to detach with love. And I said, how do you do that? That's contradictory. Detach means away from and love means close to. How can you do that? And she said, when they say detach, they don't mean detach from your spouse. They mean to detach from alcoholism. You don't need to walk the floor, look out the window. You do not need to wait up for him. You do not need to lecture. You do not need to nag or fuss. What you need to do is be the best person you can be to make yourself happy and make your children happy. If you plan a picnic and he doesn't show up, you and the children go on the picnic. You just be the best person you can be. And just, you can't do anything about Jim. But you can be nice to him. And I said, how nice. (laughs) And she said, let him know that you love him and that you're concerned about his health, and that you want the best for him, and cook some of his favorite meals. And I think I said something like, you're kidding. (laughs) But she convinced me that this is what I needed to do, that this was detached with love, 
that I didn't quit loving him. I quit going crazy over the fact that he was drinking. And that was very, very hard for me to do. But I tried. And I think Jim did see a change in me. He spoke of it last night as I started being nice, he said. You know, remember? And I think that was during this period when I was trying to learn to detach with love. I went to see Katie and Jim again, and this time I was calmer, and I was smiling. I had learned to find some happiness within myself, no matter what else was going on in my life. And Jim said to me when I started to leave, Fran, we're having a meeting on the 10th step tonight, and I think it's time for you to ask Big Jim to be there. And I said, sure, Jim, I'll do that. And I went, got in the car, and I thought, I'm not doing that. I know exactly what he'd do. He'd just shrug his shoulders and walk away. I'm not going to do that. And I went home, and I started dinner, and I heard his key in the lock, and I went flying to the door and told him what Jim said. <laughs> and he shrugged his shoulders and walked away. And I thought, he's not going to rain on my parade. And I just went in there, and I was cooking dinner, and he walked in, and he had on a clean shirt. And I said, oh, are you going somewhere? And that's when he said, I'm going back to AA, and don't you cry, because I was a crier. And I was beating those potatoes. We had the best potatoes we've ever had. <laughs> and he left and went to AA after dinner. And I danced all over that house because I knew that if he ever went back again, it was because he really wanted to be sober more than anything else. And that was 24 years ago yesterday. And I am so grateful. I am so happy that he has found a, this new way of life. And it's always new for us. Every day is new. And we are both so grateful. God has been good to us in many ways. We've certainly had our valleys, but we've had a lot of really high hills, too. And we've had some wonderful, wonderful times and experiences with some great friends. And that's one of the wonderful blessings of Al-Anon, is that you have these marvelous friends that you see from time to time and really learn to love. I know Juanita called me about six weeks ago, I guess, and said, I need to come down there and take care of you. And I said, no, you don't. I can't even cook breakfast yet. And she said, that's why I'm coming. So pretty soon after that, they did come and, and helped us so much as, as I got better. And that's the kind of friends you have. That's the kind of friends that you need and that you love and that you thank God for. Um, we have enjoyed being here so much. I thank all of you for listening to us this weekend. You know, Jim and I are learning, finally, to turn straw into gold. And I thank Alanon for that. Thank you. <laughs>